0: Well, let's take our Bibles and find our way to Ephesians chapter 6 again, Ephesians chapter 6. Today we're going to be looking at a text that I've entitled Divine Directions for Dads. Let me read those first four verses and we'll isolate our attention to verse 4. Listen to the people that Paul is talking about and he's addressing Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord." Perhaps you heard it, but earlier this year, in fact, it was in April, President Joe Biden was speaking at a Teacher of the Year ceremony. During that ceremony, he said, and I'm quoting, even the repetition, there's no such thing, the president said, as someone else's child. No such thing as someone else's child. Our nation's children are all our children, end quote. Well, this statement brought incredible backlash from conservative political pundits as well as many Christians and Christian leaders. I was even critical of it myself for good reason, I think. Children do not belong to the state. Children do not belong to society. But God has given them, God has given them to their parents. Now, these assertions by our president are certainly troubling and They bother me, but I think there's something even more troubling and more concerning that might be closer to us than we think. When the president made these comments, the pushback and outrage was loud and it was immediate. It was understandable and it was justified. But here's a question that you and I have to answer this morning as Bible-believing Christians and a part of our local assembly. Are we as Christians, are we as Christian fathers provoked by what others would like to do in raising our children? More so than we are passionate about actually raising our children. It's funny that all of that, the drama and trauma that was stirred up by those those comments that he made got everyone into quite a high-speed wobble. But I don't see that much passion exerted on what we could and should be doing with our kids today. I understand the outrage. It's ridiculous that someone suggests that our children belong to the state or to society or each other or that the state should be tasked with raising our kids. But there is a commensurate desire and excitement. There should be, let's say it that way, a commensurate desire and excitement about raising our kids, pouring into our children as Christian parents. Our study of Ephesians has brought us to Paul's instruction in chapter 5 on how believers are to be filled with or controlled by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul has said you're, you're, a spirit abiding, the Spirit abiding with a believer ought to have influence and control, and significant change and influence should be seen in the life of a believer who's walking with God through His Spirit. Then He addresses different groups who need to apply walking with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. He starts out speaking to wives. He says wives, here's how you can be a spirit abide uh, abide with the spirit of God as he abides with you in walking in obedience as a submissive godly faithful wife. Then he turns to husbands and said this is how you should love your wives and be the head in your home and be faithful to honor God. Then as we saw last week he turns to children and says children obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother. Interesting Now he turns to dads. It should strike you as curious and should grab your attention that Paul says wives, husbands, children, and then says fathers and not parents. It's curious to me. I look, I don't know, a dozen or 15 commentaries this week that we're trying to make the point, well, Paul really didn't mean to address the fathers. He really meant parents. I find that a bit challenging because notice that Paul used the term mother and father in verse 2. He has the language to talk about moms and dads. He just did it. He has the language to talk to children. Children, obey your parents. There's the word parents, both of them. In the Lord, for this is right. So he has talked about parents, and then he talks about mom and dad, mother and father in verse two. Then he comes to verse four and says, Fathers. Why would Paul shift from mom and dad in verse two to fathers in verse four? Well, good question. Let's think about this for a minute. If Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, only uses the term father in verse four, we should take what he's saying at face value. If he wanted to say fathers and mothers, he could have, he just said it in verse two. If he wanted to say parents, he could have, he used the word parents in verse one, not in verse four. He puts his bony apostolic finger on the sternum of dads, of fathers. I believe the place we need to understand, begin to understand the father's place in the home is back with the word head that he used in chapter 5, verse 23, was it? Husband is the head of the wife. He doesn't mean, I think, the husband is the head of the wife and the wife is the head of the kids and the big brother is the head of the little brother, no, I think he meant the husband is the leader in the home, expected to be the leader of the home. God doesn't make him leader. He doesn't say become head or become leader. He says the husband is the head. We're told that he's the head of the wife. It would make sense then to understand that husbands are also the leaders in the home, meaning also with children. That does not mean that the mother does not have prevailing and exceptional authority and influence in the home. Children obey your mother and father, your mom and your dad, father and mother. And we'll say in our next study, uh, a lot about moms. We're going to take a little aside next time and look at parenting in general. But this is talking to dads. How do we know that? Because he says, "Fathers, that's why." The instruction to children to obey their parents in verses 1 to 3 assumes the reality of parental authority, but it's interesting that in verse 4, he doesn't call both parents. He calls the fathers. Now, what Paul is saying, let me give you a head start. What Paul is saying to the dads, every principle that we'll outline today applies to mothers. So moms, you're not off the hook, but the example that we should be following for this parenting ought to be dad. So we're going to take Paul and Paul's instruction as it comes. Instruction to dads. So the, hence the title, Directions, Divine Directions for Dads. However, again, these principles, ladies, please mark them. Please understand them because they can be applied by moms as well. But the final authority lies in the lap of the head of the home, which is dad. Now, I, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a super creative guy. Uh, In fact, I could be called anti-creative. In fact, I share a wall with one of the most creative guys I know, which is Aaron. And um, he actually uh, actually smiled when he heard what I did this week in my attempts to be creative. There are two imperatives, two commands that Paul gives in verse 4. So how many are there? Two. And this is kind of a to-do list, so are you ready for this? Two do's. For dads. <laughs> TWO, two do's for dads. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> These are two things that God expects, two imperatives, two commands that God expects. Two do's, literally, for dad. Number one is the first imperative, first command, distance yourself, dads, from provoking interactions. Distance yourselves from provoking... Interactions, specifically here with your kids. Obviously, we don't need to be provoking anyone or everyone, but specifically, he's talking to, to kids, about kids, to dads about kids. Verse four, first phrase, Fathers, there's the patera, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, some translate fathers, which is pateras, as parents, which is gones. Two different words. Paul could have used the word parents. He just used that same word up in verse 1. But here he says fathers, as I said. He uses father and mother, patera and matera in verse 2. But here he just isolates fathers. Why does he isolate dads? Well, as much as we want to say as dads, oh, this is kind of cool. We get a special admonition and a special command to ourselves. I think it's because we are especially inclined to sins that he's correcting in this verse. Not that moms can't be inclined to commit these sins, but these are particularly tempting to fathers. It seems that he is focusing not on the responsibilities of dads or the authority of dads, he's actually warning of a particular danger. I think Paul is very aware that as fathers exercise their headship and authority, it is regrettably too easy for dads to habitually look at the faults of our kids more than their virtues and provoke them to be mad and to exasperate them. This is what it means when he says, do not provoke our kids, don't... Here's my favorite synonym for that. Don't push their buttons. And if you've raised a child from birth, you typically know where those buttons are. I know I certainly do. There's a parallel passage in Colossians where he writes this. Fathers, do not exasperate. Different verb, exasperate and provoke, although I think they mean the same thing functionally. Do not exasperate your children so that they will not... Lose heart or give up. That's powerful. He's saying, men, what I'm asking you to consider and telling you to do, if you don't do, can actually cause your children to lose heart, to give up, to choose other value systems than the one we're presenting. So when you put these two words together from Ephesians and Colossians, provoke and exasperate, It means that a father is not to frustrate intensely, to make our kids feel futile, to provoke them to anger. Literally push their buttons. The word literally means to make angry from close behind, to prod and proke someone to, to be angry. Look, when our children are young, up through elementary school, you and I as parents are bigger, and louder, more powerful than they are. And we usually want the right things, but sometimes we try to achieve the right things with the wrong means. You've, you've heard me talk about this before, but try to remember this. You cannot, this is terrible English and really good theology. You cannot bad attitude someone into a good attitude. I, mean, I remember my own parenting. You need to have a better attitude. Oh, that's helpful, daddy. Don't be angry with your brother. Oh, like you're angry with me right now? You can't bad attitude someone into a good attitude. Here are some synonyms to consider. Do you frustrate your kids? Anger your kids? Provoke your kids, exasperate your kids where they just lose hope, discourage your kids, confuse your kids. Sometimes this is right, sometimes this is wrong. Sometimes you can do this, sometimes you can't do this. Do you nag your kids? Do you ever embarrass your kids, especially in front of their friends, even their siblings? Belittle your kids, bully your kids? or on the complete opposite end of that spectrum, alienate them. Just ignore them. After looking at many commentaries this week, I, I, I did what you're... I've learned not to do, but I did it anyway. And I, I googled, what does it mean to provoke and exasperate your children? Now, it wasn't a bad thing. I found dozens, literally dozens of lists of what people had said, this is what it means to provoke and exasperate your children. And I began looking, and they were all good. So I picked one that I liked to share with you. And it was by Lou Priolo, who's, who's a dear brother and a good friend. Uh, he has, now, now, don't run out when I say this. He has 25 ways that we can easily provoke and exasperate our children. I'm going to list those for you really quickly. I will put these online this week. You don't have to write these down. But I would appreciate it if, as dads especially, and moms, we would consider ways that parents can be inclined to provoke and exasperate our children. Number one, a lack of marital harmony. A lack of marital harmony. Let me say it another way. Mom, dad, perhaps the best gift you can ever give your children is a healthy marriage. Ah, remember when Kim and I were at odds with each other, we had arguments. I could see on the little faces in the mirror of our minivan because that's usually where arguments kind of (laughs) happen. I could look at them and they were just demolished in their soul. They hated to watch us disagree. So then we developed a little protocol that if If we got into something in front of the boys, I don't have any girls, if you didn't know, I have three sons. If we got into something in front of them, we had to get out of it in front of them, which meant itemizing our sin, confessing it, and asking forgiveness. So the boys got to see that too. Then after a while it became, we would have a little disagreement, and one of them would say, okay, dad, you know how this ends. You want to ask forgiveness now? And they were right. Let me just say the obvious. Marital tension is felt more by your kids than even you. Number two, establishing and maintaining a child-centered home. This is where they get anything and everything they want. This is where you want peace so much you would sacrifice anything for peace instead of doing us right, which always takes more time. Number three, modeling sinful anger. It's interesting how you say that. Modeling. We usually think of that as a positive. positive. Modeling sinful anger. You know, again, back to, you need to, don't be angry with your brother. Oh, thank you, Father, for such a wonderful example. It doesn't work. Habitually disciplining in anger. If you discipline you in anger, if you, if you apply the rod in anger or if you Correct in anger more times than not. They won't hear the lesson. They will hear your attitude, your heart, your your anger. Number six, being inconsistent with discipline. Like I said, sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes you're disciplined, sometimes you're not. Do I have time to deal with now? No, then you can do it. Being inconsistent. Having double standards. Oh, your brother can do that, but you can't. Your sister can do that, but you can't. I can do that, but you can't. You can't watch that. That's not an appropriate show. The kids go to bed, you turn the show on, they wake up to come and get a glass of water. Why can't you watch it, mom and dad? Number eight, being legalistic. You need to do this or not do that. Why? Because that's what Hollands do. Well, that's not a good answer. Number nine, not admitting when you're wrong and not asking forgiveness. Dads. When is the last time this week, this month, today? When is the last time you sat your child down at whatever age and were willing to say, I sinned against you in these ways. Will you please forgive me? Not admitting when you're wrong and not asking for forgiveness. Number 10, constantly finding fault. You just nitpick everything. You find everything that they're doing wrong. Number 11, parents reversing God-given roles. Mom becomes in charge and dad's the passive one who's not involved in parenting at all. How many times, dads, have we said, go ask your mother when we should have sat down and had a good talk about the values that were involved in that decision? Number 12, not listening to your child's opinion or taking his or her side of the story seriously. Um, Listen, most of the time in my upbringing, I was a rascal and I was wrong. But I remember one time doing something Uh, my, my, uh, we had a a neighbor man who came over to tell my dad about it and he lied about me. What he told my dad wasn't true and I got in trouble for it. And I remember being so frustrated like, dad, that's not what happened. But in defense of dad, I was usually wrong. So I understand taking his side. Listen to your kids and Give them a chance to express themselves and appeal. Number 13, comparing them to others, even their their own siblings. You're not like so-and-so. You're, no, no, no. Let them be themselves. Number 14, we could spend an hour on each, each of these. Uh, not making time to just talk. This was a stretch for me, and not because I didn't want to talk to my boys, but... Most of you who know me you know I'm I'm one of those people. I, I like to go to bed at 8 or 8.30 and get up at 4. It's just the rhythm of, of life that makes best sense to me. But I noticed when my boys hit the teen years that the the time they wanted to talk most was 10 or 11 sitting on the corner of our bed. And I had to receive the wonderful and, and very gracious slap, tap, tap from my wife on the shoulder that, you know, we need to talk to... Our son here, do you take the time to talk and to listen? Number 15, not praising or encouraging your child. They only hear negative. They don't hear the positive. How about this? Number 16, failing to keep your promises. There's a couple of times I can remember that haunt me to this very, very moment where I can remember... One of my sons wanting to do something, and I couldn't do it right then, I said, "We'll do it later." And then I didn't have time later. Chasting them in front of others. make sure you're correcting in private. Protect their dignity, in other words. Not allowing enough freedom, and number 18, number 19, allowing too much freedom. Finding that, that sweet spot is something that you're going to figure out by experience. Mocking your child making fun of them, abusing them physically, that should go without saying, ridiculing or name-calling your child, you're stupid, that's stupid, unrealistic expectations. You know, we, I've talked about this with my sons, so this is not anything that, that they, would, they, they would smile and laugh at this. I, I, my God, my idol in high school and college was sports. I did five sports a year, uh, from the time I was in the seventh grade on, loved sports, wanted to compete. I mean, I, my, my mom tells this crazy story that when, when I was in elementary school, we lived on a corner, and I would stand in one corner of the yard, and when cars would turn to, to go down my street, I would race them to the end of my fence. It was, it was a sick, sick problem I had. <laughs> but I just loved competition. And then I had three sons, and God didn't give me an athlete. Gave me musicians, he gave me pastors. I mean, amazing things. But I, I remember saying, no, you will play football and you'll be good like football players were, are. Unrealistic expectations. Practicing favoritism. And then his last one is child training with worldly methodologies inconsistent with God's word. Now this can also be done obviously by moms, but dads, I think we can provoke and exasperate our children with these or many other applications. Paul's very aware of the unique temptations fathers face to land too hard because we are the head or to not land at all because we're negligent and we're just simply told, don't provoke them. That's the negative side. There's the positive though, this. First to-do for dad, distance yourself from provoking interactions. Number two is in the last part of the verse. Devote yourself to parental shepherding. Look at yourself as the family's pastor, as the shepherd of of the home. But you can translate that instead, instead of being provocative and exasperating, but instead bring them up, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up, ectrepho, it means nourish. You've seen this word before, and it was about you, especially husbands. Look back at verse, uh, uh, where is it, Uh, 29 in chapter five. No one ever hated his own flesh, here's the verb, but there's the word, nourishes, that's the word, nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. So to nourish means to promote health and strength, to educate, to take care of, to treat your kids as if your values for your own self were theirs. You have them for them. Now there's a context here. Notice he says, let's kind of work backwards in the text. Discipline and instruction of the Lord. The context is of the Lord. This means that we recognize that our kids are to be raised with God as the center point. They're a gift. Psalm 127, verse 3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. In other words, these are His kids. I just have a few decades to babysit them for Him. They're His. He gave them to us for good carekeeping. Children, remember, if you look back at verse 1, are to obey, there's the same phrase, in the Lord, for this is right, parents are to train then and instruct in the Lord, especially fathers, which simply means God is the center point for all of our parenting. He's the means, the reason. Dr. Ian Bowell says this, reproof is needed for children that they may abandon the negative and sinful practices that they naturally develop. He says, Ephesians 4, uh, 2, 3, they're blinded by the enemy and children of wrath. And that they adopt and wisely discern how to live holy lives that please their heavenly Father. Proverbs thirteen twenty four says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Hence, what makes parental training and reproof tolerable is that it's in the Lord where the passage begins, verse 1, and of the Lord where it ends in verse 4. You say, how do we do that? I mean, uh, what, is, what does that even look like? God left us an amazing example. Our fathering is to mirror God's fathering of us, His children. Let me give you some insights from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12.5. 12, Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, the Father, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Hebrews 12, 7. For it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Hebrews 12, 8. But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Let me say it this way. One of the main assurances I have that I'm a son of God is I don't get away with anything. I mean, God has a consistent way in my life of letting my sin be known to those who are closest to me. That's a grace. He's disciplining us. It's the person who can live long, long, long in sin without any check to that sin that would make, based on this verse, me say, is God really my Father? Because I should expect some discipline. Verse 12, Hebrews 12, twelve eleven. all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Isn't that true? But sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God disciplines us, which doesn't always mean uh, 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 correction or spanking or punishment. Discipline means correcting for the purpose of doing what's right. I think it's interesting when Paul's talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 4, 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned, learned and become convinced of. What's interesting is he goes on to say from childhood, you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ. I mean, this, this means this instruction, discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now we're in the second word, instruction. That means we're taught by, we are to be taught rather by our parents first and foremost. There's some formal elements to this, deliberate, intentional reading of the Bible, specifically Dads, do you teach your kids the nature of God, the nature of his ways, the sufficiency of his word? Man, we should be teachers who convince our children that God and his ways are best, that they're worth it, the worth of pursuit and the sacrifice to understand. The curriculum for Timothy was the sacred writings. That was the Old Testament. And please note that they gave him the wisdom that leads to salvation Dads, how, how can I possibly emphasize this enough? The primary, top-shelf aim of every dad is a sal- Christian dad is the salvation of his children. We are to be their foremost and first evangelists. That means we teach God's Word to our kids. We talk about God's Word with our kids It means that you are becoming more and more proficient with your Bible, dad. And ultimately, the question at hand is whether our kids know the way to heaven because dad showed them the way. Knowing from whom you've learned them back in that passage, authentic modeling. I think this means that, I'm gonna choose this word really carefully. We are to be reasonable examples of what we believe and teach. Reasonable examples means we won't be perfect examples. It means we're examples of what to do and what to believe when, as much as we can be, and when we blow it, we ask forgiveness of our kids for it. Now, the anchor passage for this, we're going to come back to this in our next study, but the anchor passage for this is in Deuteronomy 6. The formal and informal elements of these parental responsibilities, especially of the father, are spelled out so clearly. Listen, remember, Mo, the, the, the people are in Moab looking across the Jordan. They're about to go in. The older generation has just died off. This new generation is coming on. Deuteronomy, second, nomos law, Deuteronomy, the second law giving, should be uh, Moses gives them from the, the plains, the desert of Moab, and then he goes up on the mountain and dies because he can't go over either. This is what he says, Deuteronomy 6. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I've I've commanded you all the days of your life and that your days will be prolonged. Oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. The theology here is dense and rich. Here's who God is. Here's what he's done. That's a great curriculum. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. Sounds good till now. Listen to verse 7. You shall teach, everything I just said, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Formal and informal. As we've said over and over, life, (laughs) all of life is a classroom for theology for God. And you are always a teacher, mom and dad, but here the accent is dad. So that, as we noticed last week, down later in that chapter in verse 20, when your sons in time come to you and ask... What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean with the Lord our God has commanded you? Eventually, your kids ought to ask, why do we live this way? Why do we talk this way? Why do we act this way? Why do we do certain things and don't do certain things? Why are we com- are, are obeying the Bible? Why do we read the Bible? Why? It's a great question, but they will never ask that question unless they're taught about these statutes that should raise questions as to why do that? Why go against all of my feelings and desires to do what God says? Why should I do that? And dad, you better have an answer. So fathers, dads, I think Paul would say, what actions and attitudes do you express to your children that provoke their anger and exasperate their hearts? that rob their hope, that it frustrate them, that move them to motivate, to be motivated to disobey. Dads, do you know your kids? Have you seen how your attitude toward them affects them? Do you know how to make your son or your daughter do you know how they feel about the way you feel about them? Are you shepherding them, caring for them, teaching them, nurturing them, opening your Bible with them? Okay. So, I hear this passage, I hear these words, And I feel like I want to crawl under a rock. I feel like I wish I could go back (laughs) to that day that Kim brought our first son home from the hospital. I was such a knucklehead. I wanted to video it. So she had just got out of the hospital and she's carrying the bag and Luke, and, and I'm filming. Such a helper. And it was icy but I wish I could go back and do 10,000 things differently. Things I said to each of my boys I wish I could unsay. Things I wish I would have said that I wish I would have said. And if you're like me and you have any kind of sensitive conscience, you hear this and you say, oh, for a mulligan in life. But there is grace that is greater Than how much of our sin? All our sin. If you feel like I do that there's a lot of things you wish you could have done differently, how about sitting down with your kids, whatever age, even adults, and asking forgiveness? It's never too late to start being a more faithful parent. But no one is all one thing. I think sensitive consciences will look back and say, see, all that we did wrong? Godly men, at whatever level, don't do everything wrong. Now, in our next study, we're going to look at some principles for parenting for both mom and dad. But this is Paul isolating us. I don't want to embarrass him, I'll get in trouble probably for saying this. But this week, we, we have a great relationship on staff. We look back at the last week and in the week that's coming on, and, and the guys helped me in thinking about what I should be uh, um, considering in the sermons, and we look back at how we could improve last week, and it's a wonderful time that I share with these brothers. But we were in the car, and Aaron was telling me that he had asked his was going to ask his kids to listen to the sermon today so that they could give him feedback on whether or not or how he was provoking and exasperating them. You want a good lunch conversation? <laughs> I think there's some spiritual virtue and bravery into saying to your son, to your daughter at whatever age, can you, can you help me see ways that I've made it difficult It's caused me a lot of reflection this week because my dad's in heaven. He left this earth in 92 and I miss him so much. I wish I could, wish he could see my boys, wish he could meet my wife, wish he could meet you guys so much. I feel the same way about my mom who died 10 years later. But in thinking about this verse, almost nothing I really mean that, almost comprehensive, almost nothing in my life hurt me worse than my dad's criticisms. I can still remember them in this moment, but the other side, not almost nothing, nothing, nothing thrilled my heart more than his encouragement. Nothing. Dads. The opportunity for spiritual influence is incredible. Let's work hard at leveraging that for God's glory and the good of our kids so that we won't provoke our children to anger, but we'll bring them up in the discipline an instruction of the Lord. I pray. Father, thank you for the grace that's greater than all our sin and that no man can out it. It's easy for us in these moments with a text like this to see nothing but regret and yet... You are so kind. Your loving kindness endures forever. Your grace is sufficient. Your enablement pervasive. Thank you for these men who will take these words from Paul seriously. Give us the grace to be better dads this afternoon than we were this morning because of your empowerment, the leading and presence of your spirit, the forgiveness we have in the gospel and the sustaining encouragement of each other. Thank you for our kids. For those dads who look back and see, even maybe before they were a believer, great times of regret, Lord, give them comfort and grace that you're bigger. Your providence is way bigger than our influence. I pray especially for younger dads who on the other spectrum would see that their influence is real and can be leveraged for your glory and for their relationships. Thank you for tapping us as fathers because you are our father and we want to be like you. In Jesus' name, amen.